I can't announce just one scripture passage for you to turn to this morning. We're going to be in several places. Some of you have seen a clip of a sermon that has circulated widely by Alistair Begg. I don't know if some of you know the name Alistair Begg. Anything that he preaches is worth listening to. But this particular clip, he was talking about visiting another church, being away from his own church and not preaching that day and walking into the service. And the first thing he hears from the pulpit is someone asking the congregation, how do you feel this morning? And he thought to himself and he related as only Alistair Begg can. He says, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. Ask me what I know to be true. And so I stand here this morning wanting to rehearse with you things that we know to be true. These are very simple things, but things nonetheless that are essential and foundational to our understanding. Our feelings can often lead us astray. They fail us. We rely upon the truth as the foundation for our spiritual life and even for our worship. It is the knowledge of the truth of God that holds our feelings and emotions in check. Some of you may not feel like being here this morning. Some of you are physically tired. You are feeling the aches and pains of whatever it is that aches and pains you. You may not emotionally want to be here. Spiritually, you may not feel like being here. Oftentimes we're cold and lethargic, lukewarm even. But here we are nonetheless because we have a responsibility to God to attend upon his worship and we have a responsibility to one another to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so for those reasons, both of them very good reasons, I trust that the Lord will bless us today. And I can say in truth to you all this morning, there is no place that I would rather be than right here. I want to remind you of a few things that we know to be true. And these things are true not because we have given them our stamp of approval. The word of God does not need mine nor your approval. It needs and demands our obedience and submission. We know these things to be true because God has made them known to us. He's opened our understanding. He's given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And in that way, the knowledge that we have and the knowledge that we will, Lord willing, acquire, we hold it in humility and thanksgiving, knowing that God has revealed it to us and it is now serving as the very bedrock of our faith and our living. I want you to consider with me this morning just a few things. What we know to be true about God. What we know to be true about the world in which we live. 
what we know to be true about the gospel and what we know to be true about things yet to come. Four simple yet foundational things that we confess and that we believe. So I'm just going to ask you to pray with me as we begin. I've probably got a dozen or more scripture passages that we're going to turn to. I'm going to read them fully so you don't have to try to keep up or you're more than welcome. I'll try to remember to announce the text to you before I read them. But pray with me before we begin. Father, I come this morning and ask for your help. Lord, help us to glory in these things that we will be reminded of. Things concerning your attributes. About the depravity and vanity of this world in which we live. About the beauty of the gospel. And the hope of eternal life. Lord, I pray that these things will be an encouragement to us. That to be reminded of them will serve us well. Lord, I pray that you would use them in all of our lives individually for your own glory and collectively as a church. Father, make yourself known. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that I want to talk to you about this morning, things that we know, things that govern our feelings and emotions and go so far as to hold them in check, not just today, but any day, any day of your life where your feelings or emotions would get the better of you if you let them. I hope and trust that some portion of this sermon you will call to mind that the Lord would use it in your life and even in mine for good. The first thing is I want you to consider with me These three things about God our Father, these three simple things that He is holy, He is just, and He is good. And children, I want you to hear me. The God that we are here worshiping, the God that your parents are teaching and instructing you about, He is holy. He is just and he is good. He is altogether unlike you and me. Considering this aspect of God's character, his holiness, turn to a very familiar passage of scripture in the prophet Isaiah. It's the sixth chapter where this might be perhaps the greatest glimpse that we have in all of Scripture into the very throne room of heaven and the things that Isaiah sees there. We know these verses well. We know that this happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Verse 1 tells us that. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each having... Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, he, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, what is the natural, even supernatural or spiritual response to the holiness of God? To see the holiness of God in the way that Isaiah saw it, in the way that you and I this morning are privileged to read, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the God of the Scripture, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship. The God that we yearn to know more of has told us in this place and throughout his revelation that he is a holy God. That necessarily means that he will not countenance sin. And that goes right to the next point or the right to the next attribute that we'll consider concerning God our Father and that is that he is just. He is just. So much of the current thinking concerning God completely ignores his justice. So many think of God as being sentimental. So many think of God as only being love. Now granted, it does say in the scriptures unequivocally that God is love, but there are other things the Bible says about him. One of those things is that he is just. And what that means is that in the end, love is not going to win. You might remember the title of that book that gained some traction in the church a few years ago. And the title simply is Love Wins. It was a book that presented universalism. And basically the premise of the book is God is so loving that in the end, everyone, Everyone will have eternal life. And see, the view there goes, the attribute of God is that love wins over all else, even over his justice. Not so. The beautiful thing about the God of scriptures is that he is all of these things at once and all of them perfectly. His love does not suffer at the hands of his justice, nor vice versa. Now, I know to our logical minds that doesn't make sense, but how little can our finite minds understand of the infinite God? Yes, it's true he's love, but he's just. And Abraham, the verse that we'll look at to consider the justice of God, two of them actually Out of Genesis chapter 18, you might remember Abraham after his nephew Lot had been taken captive and was now dwelling in Sodom. And we know the types of wickedness that took place in that city. And the Lord revealed to Abraham, I am going to go and destroy this place, Sodom and Gomorrah, because of their iniquity. It has risen up before me and it's full And Abraham, because of the love for his nephew Lot, began to reason with the Lord. And he appealed 
to the Lord. And he would say things like, if you found 50 righteous there, Lord, surely you would not destroy all of the righteous with the ungodly. And you remember they reasoned back and forth. And Abraham says in the 18th chapter in verse 25, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you, Lord. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And what a tremendous question. But it's not just the question of Abraham. It's, it's the dispersal of knowledge for us. Because the implied answer, the only answer to that question is, yes, indeed, the judge of all the earth will indeed do right always. He always does right. And this is one of those things that as Christians, very oftentimes we have to just crawl up to it on our knees and bow in submission to the Lord, knowing that he's good and that he is just. And even though we don't understand it, we can confess with Abraham that our Father in heaven has done the right thing. And that in time, be it in this life or in the next, we may come to an understanding of it. Or we may not. But the confession of the Christian is this. The judge of all the earth does right always. The second part of God's justice that I want to bring out is is found in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Because this deals with the justice of God, not just as it refers to not slaying the righteous along with the wicked. And that is the whole reason, by the way, why this world, as putrid as it is, why it continues to see a daily rationing of God's common grace. It receives this rationing of God's common grace daily because of me and you. Because of the love for His bride, the church that continues to dwell in this world. Why is God sustaining all things by the word of His power? Why is the Lord Jesus Christ upholding all things in this world that is so wicked, so perverse, and so vile? Because He has set His affection upon His church. And for the time being, we continue to live and dwell here. But there is a coming day. There is a coming day when that common grace of God will be withdrawn. And the unrighteous will know nothing of the kindness of a next breath. They will know nothing of the kindness of a drop of water. They will know nothing of the kindness of being able to hear the name of God proclaimed or the glories of Jesus Christ. Even though they reject it, they will have nothing of the common grace of God. It will be withdrawn from them because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be gathered unto himself. And this world left to be judged. Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 makes this declaration about the justice of God or the justness of God. This is one of the pearls of gospel revelation that's found throughout this book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 21. 
where Paul says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just. You see, it's still true in a sense that we are living in the day of God's forbearance. Peter tells us that God is long-suffering. And the reason that he is long-suffering is because he is not willing that any should perish. But what Paul is telling us here, this period of forbearance will come to an end, and verse 26 declares that God is both just and necessarily the justifier. The fact that God is just means that He is holding each one individually accountable for their sin. And thank God He is not only just, but He is the justifier. How so? Because He satisfied the demands of His own justice... When he dispatched his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the greatest rescue mission ever. And in that sense, because he considered his own son to be sin, he is now the justifier of the righteous. This is an expression of how these two things in the heart and mind of God can have a perfect resolution. Is he just Yes. How is he just towards me? Because he's justified me in Christ. So he's both. Not as if we needed grounds, but if you want logical grounds for the punishment of the wicked in a place called the lake of fire or Gehenna, here it is. God is just. And he justly condemns all who turn from his son and the offer of salvation to be found in him, he is just in condemning them to an eternal damnation because of the rejection of the justification that he has wrought on our behalf. God is holy, he is just. Thirdly, he is good. Psalm 100 ends by making this same declaration after we've been given many reasons to glory in the fact that God is good. Psalm 100 is a call to praise and worship. It's, we call it a psalm of thanksgiving. And it begins by saying, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. 
It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are the people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. What, why? What's the reason? It's given in the fifth verse. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. He's worthy of our worship. Not only is goodness an attribute of God, an attribute of God, or a description of his character, it's also a description of the gifts that he gives. God gives to us of his goodness. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. All the good that you have received has come to you through the hands of a good Father who is holy, yes, just, yes, and good. Now I realize we could add so many more things to that. So many more attributes of God are worthy of our consideration and careful study. But these three are things that we know. They temper our feelings. They temper our feelings in time of sorrow. They temper our feelings in time of joy. They are always true, always applicable. They are unchanging, having been forever settled in heaven Considering all three of these, his holiness, his justice, and his goodness, how can we make any other summation but that he is deserving of our worship? That is what Psalm 96 verses 1 through 3 declares. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and his wonders among all the peoples. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our energy. He's worthy of our practicing of good stewardship. He is worthy of everything that we can give him in this life. He's worthy. It is of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation, perhaps along with Isaiah, gives us the greatest look into the holy sphere of God's dwelling. What is being said there? Over and over, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor, majesty and dominion. So in those moments and in those days when you just don't feel like worshiping the Lord, remember, He's holy, He's just, and He's good necessarily. He demands our worship. The second thing I want you to consider with me that is something that we must continually put in the forefronts of our minds as something that we know. 
when we ask the question, what in the world is wrong? Then we must know that what is wrong in the world is sin. You could hang a sign over the whole world system that says, out of order. We were eating the other night in a restaurant here in town that used to have a payphone. Remember those? And it's a payphone that I can remember 25 years ago I used. And a funny little sign was painted beside it pointing to where it used to hang and it just said simply out of order. But that's the sign that could be hung over the world system. It is out of God's order. And as as such, it is standing in need of restoration. It is standing in need of renewal. It is standing in need of salvation. The world has completely gone wrong. And this is really nothing new. It's been out of order since Genesis chapter 3. John the Apostle writes in his first epistle, the second chapter, verses 15 through 18. He's writing to believers and he says, do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the world. The world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. We've already read this morning that verse out of Romans 3, which makes the sweeping declaration, the all-inclusive declaration, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Perhaps it's good to pause here and make a definition of what sin is. And I just simply read to you the answer that the Shorter Catechism gives to the simple question, what is sin? The answer, sin is a lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is defined by anything that goes contrary to the clear commands of God in Scripture. And that harkens back all the way to Genesis. Adam had one command to obey. Don't eat of this tree. But yet he transgressed. He lacked conformity to that commandment and plunged the human race headlong into sinfulness and the curse of sin. John the Apostle again along this point says, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. The cause for the perversity which is in the world, which has always existed, I realize we sometimes think we're living in the worst age of history. We're not. Great expressions of perversity have always been. Think of 
Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. Paul wasn't looking forward so much as he was surveying his own, own landscape and he saw that the truth of God had been exchanged for the lie and that God had given over to sensual passions. The cause for the perversity which has always existed in the world is sin. Sin is the reason why babies are killed in their mother's wombs. Sin is the reason why the truth of God is continually exchanged for the lie. The existence of sin in the world is why you have loved ones that who are addicted to drugs or alcohol, or perhaps why you have struggled with that in the past yourself. Sin is the reason why tragedies happen. Sin is the reason why the wicked seem to prosper. Sin is the reason why there is grief. And why there are tears in this world. Sin is the reason why there's sickness and death. Because the world is completely out of order. And because of God's forbearance. Because of his long suffering. He lets this world reel to and fro, out of order for a while. Some of the greatest expressions of God's kindness and love and mercy to us are in response to some of the very things I just mentioned. When we are in sickness or facing death or have experienced the death of a close loved one, isn't it in those seasons when God in his kindness just draws near. And let me be clear. These things that I mentioned aren't necessarily the cause of individual an individual's sin. What I'm saying, these things happen because of the presence of sin in the world. Which is going to be as long as this world continues until the return of Christ. What then is the answer? If God is holy, let me say it again, since God is holy, just, and good, but since this creation of His is completely out of order, what's the answer? Well, we know the answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy. The gospel of our holy, just, and good Father concerning His Son is the remedy. Jesus is who the world needs. Jesus is who I need. Sorry, who I need. Jesus is who you need. He is the answer to every problem in the world. He is the answer to everything that is out of order in this world system. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes the heart of man, which is the root of the problem. You understand that, don't you? That's the root of the problem. If you're really wanting to fix something, you don't start at the external thing and work your way backward. You try to go to the very heart and root of the problem. 
That's what the gospel does. It goes to the very root of the problem of man's sinfulness and performs a miracle. Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle not by the power of self-discipline, not by the power of self-love, but by the power of God operative in him. And the very reason that many of us can say along with Paul and bear this testimony. You might remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after Paul gives this long, grievous list of sins, he then says, and such were some of you. The reason that we can share in that testimony is because the gospel has changed us from the inside out. Paul goes on there in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We're not who we once were. Our affections are different. Our desires are different. Our appetites are different. Yes, obviously we continue to struggle with sin and sinfulness, but we're no longer enslaved to it. The simple declaration of Paul again in Romans 1 this time, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Knowing such, and I suppose that every person in the room, I'll be at the top of the list, will make a hearty declaration and sound an amen to the truth that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation, and that as Christians we are not to be ashamed of it. How dare we be ashamed of the power of God? Our ashamedness of the power of God comes forth by our, for whatever reason, not making it known by not proclaiming it, by doubting its power. You have that person in your life, in your life. I have them in my life that I look at them and I see them and I just think, is there any way? They're way too far gone. Look at these addictions. Look at these practices. Look at the treatment of their body. Look at what they have done to themselves. Look at how sin has so greatly affected them. Look at how many times they have cursed God to His face. Look at how many times they have outright denied Him. To be ashamed of the gospel is to to let that thinking creep into your mind that the gospel is not enough to save that person. To be ashamed of the gospel allows thinking in your mind that thinks the gospel can only save savable people. People who are, are clean or that have some type of, of knowledge or that, that are willing or ready to be saved. But what we see in Scripture is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and it saves the most vile wretch. That's why John Newton would write that hymn that we sing so often, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Would he devote that sacred head, another hymn, for a worm? Our modern hymnals have revised that and made it a little more palatable. But in its original, it's not for sinners such as I, it's for a worm 
such as I. The answer to that question is, indeed, he did devote that sacred head for such a worm as me. The sinless Jesus hanging in the place of sinners before a holy God, fully satisfying his just requirement and fully removing his wrath is the message the world that is out of order needs to hear. We know this to be true. We confess its truth. But how often do we peddle the weak and beggarly elements of the world as the remedy for all that is wrong? We speak with someone and they relate their problems to us. And we say, you have problems? Seek counseling. Get medical treatment. Get medical help. Think more highly of yourself. Take some me time. Just go relax. Read this motivational book or go to this motivational seminar. Far too often, that's the way that we think. Instead of just simply coming to that person in love and saying, seek Jesus. Seek the truth. Apply the truths of the gospel to your life. Believe, repent, trust, obey, pray. Give yourself to the word. Come to Christ. He will not cast you away. Why don't we say those kinds of things more often? Is it because we're ashamed of the gospel? Do we truly think that this world has more to offer to fix itself than the righteous Christ does? Sometimes our remedies tell on us. Why we tell people the things we do sometimes when they come to us with their problems rather than just humbly with love And in truth, tell them, you need Jesus. Now, don't hear me say something that I'm not. I'm not saying that tomorrow with that person, things are going to be different. What I am saying is that they will find in Christ a solace for every need. What they will find there is someone that they can take that need to continually, anytime, any place, and he will receive them unto himself. I'm not one who would say to a, a person anywhere, to say, if you'll come to Christ, your living situation or your circumstances of life will immediately change. Because that's just not true. But what is true is that part of you that I can't see, your soul, If you will come to Christ confessing your sin, if you will come believing in the power of Jesus Christ, if you will come turning from all of that and turning to God, He will make you new. He'll make you whole. And it may take years to clean up the rest of your life. But that initial thing is done once and for all. You will be declared righteous before God. So we have a God that is holy, just, and good. We're living in a world that is completely out of order, but yet we are armed with the best news ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we, which we have believed into the saving of our soul, which brings me to the last point. 
And that is, as Christians, we have a great hope. Don't forget it. In those moments that you just feel all out of sorts, remember this, you have a great hope. This world and its system, all that vexes a righteous soul, even as the scripture says, Lot's righteous soul was being vexed, will one day be gone. We know this. Jesus is coming again. As the bewildered apostles in Acts chapter 1 saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and they looked there, they looked upon him with great consternation. Just I can imagine in my own mind what they've just seen. Acts chapter 1 tells us, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as Jesus went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us, Paul tells us, Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we believe. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming back. I can hear Brother Mike singing right now. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. But he's coming back. So until then, stay the course. Knowing that your labor, your effort in the Lord is not in vain. Stay the course until the time appointed by our holy, just, and good Father in heaven to come and make right everything that is wrong. And we stay the course by preaching that gospel, which is the remedy for everything wrong. Which is the very power of God unto salvation. And in doing so, we are finishing the work that we have been given to do. And we are running the race the way the scripture tells us to run it. Away with our feelings. These are the things that we know.
Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these very things. We're thankful to know that you are indeed a holy, righteous, just, good Father. We're thankful to know that this world in which we live is fleeting, it's passing, and that we are pilgrims and strangers in it, making our way through. You have armed us with the greatest message of salvation. We've believed it unto the saving of our soul. Lord, help us by our actions and words not to show ourselves to be ashamed of this gospel. And Lord, would you steady us time and time again by the fact that someday, a day known only by you, our Father, our Lord Jesus will return. He told us. It's recorded in Scripture. He said, I will not leave you orphans. I will return and gather you unto myself. Lord, we look for that day. We long for it. We yearn for it. Father, help us in the meantime to be faithful, to be people of the book, to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We pray and ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.